every American citizen must have an equal right to vote. The administration of elections is primarily a state and local responsibility. Whether you voted for the very first time or waited in line for a very long time, by the way, we have to fix that. Welcome to High Turnout, Wide Margins. This is Brianna Lennon. I am the county clerk of Boone County, Missouri. And with me is my co-host. Eric Faye, Director of Elections in St. Louis County, Missouri. And today we have a really special guest. Amber McReynolds is here from Colorado, and she is going to be speaking to us about all different versions of vote by mail, advice on what we can do to transition to vote by mail and how Colorado ended up being the model of elections reform and administration that it is today. So welcome and thanks for being here. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. We'll start out with our our normal question. How did you end up in elections? So I've been in elections now close to 16 years. I started sort of getting interested in the topic of election policy and what have you During undergrad at University of Illinois, I grew up in Illinois, um, and then I went and did my master's at the London School of Economics and was able to work while I was doing my master's for the United Kingdom's Solicitor General under Tony Blair. And at the time, she actually had election policy reform as one of her objectives. And so I did a lot of research work for her on that topic in the UK and observed a lot of elections while I was there at the local level. And so started to get interested in it. And then moved back to the United States, took a a job leading a policy organization that was focused on domestic violence and family violence issues and did that for like a year or so. And it was interesting because it was sort of a an integration of government and improving the process with the criminal justice system, with all of the nonpartisan advocates in, in the field. But what I realized was the topic was a, was really a hard topic. Uh, it was a very emotional topic included elder abuse and child abuse and all those sorts of things. And it was just something that for me, at least, I knew I would never be able to kind of stay in that kind of field. And so I went to work for an organization at the time called the New Voters Project. And I was one of the state coordinators in Iowa. And our focus was to improve civic engagement, access to the voting process amongst college students. And so we set up programs on all the campuses in Iowa, educating students about caucuses and presidential election and all that in 2004. And I kind of found my passion. And I also, in that job, saw how frustrating it was to register to vote, to figure out the voting laws by county, to educate students on the the process, to see students get left out because they missed a deadline. And so it really exposed me to how difficult and complicated the process actually was. And um, I, during that job, I was going to Denver a lot because uh, we had trainings there and I loved the city. And then I started looking for jobs in Denver and and landed in a operational coordinator job at the Denver elections division. And the rest is kind of history. I I held various positions, uh, including deputy and then became director of elections in 2011. How did you kind of make that transition from doing like advocacy work and, you know, helping Colorado through its transition to like all you work on now is elections and it's all the administration stuff of it and trying to make sure that 
we have good policies so that we have good elections? One of the first um, jobs I had in Denver, and, and when I when I arrived in Denver, it wasn't a very good office. Like there were efficiency problems. There were professionalism among staff wasn't very good. Nobody really liked each other. No one got along very well. And the systems and technology, everything was very outdated. There weren't very good procedures in place. Like there was no guidebook for my position. I literally had to kind of make everything up. And so in that process, what I also found right away, and this was probably week number one, is that no one in the kind of executive management or the clerk, the, at the time it was a commission, so there was a county clerk plus two commissioners, and I never heard them talk about serving the public or improving customer service or putting voters first or innovating to create a better experience. That that It was just not their approach. Uh, they sort of did things the way they'd always done them. Uh, there wasn't any appetite for, for changing and improving. And it was very frustrating. I went home on most nights my first year working there, frustrated, crying, <laughs> like trying to figure out if I had chosen the wrong field. And I, I, at the time, I just, I started a journal and I literally started chronicling and kind of writing down everything as I would come across a process that needed improvement or a piece of technology that didn't work so well, whatever it was, or a policy or a law that maybe didn't make sense or didn't work for a voter. I started just documenting all of it in a journal that I kept for the first year, year and a half I was there. And then there was one, there were a couple calls from voters that were transformational to me in how I thought about elections. And one of them was actually from a military voter in October of 2005, when I had first started there. My first election were in charge of the absentee and UACAVA process. Um, but a military voter had called a few days before our election and he had not gotten his ballot. And this was before the 45 day mailing before electronic delivery, before all of those things that, you know, are now available. And he had not gotten his ballot and he had a relative that was running for school board and his kids were in Denver public schools and he um, wanted to vote in that election. And we didn't have options for him under our laws. Like I had no ability basically to get him uh, serviced in the timeframe. And while he was telling me how he hadn't got his ballot, you could hear gunfire in the background. And he was stationed in Afghanistan at the time. And like, literally I said, look, call me back tomorrow at this time. I'm going to find a solution for you. And I hung up with him and I ended up calling our city attorney and like, you know, kind of exploring, trying to figure out a solution for him. And we ended up coming up with one partly because it was a coordinated election, meaning Denver was involved as well as the state. So it wasn't a state run election, but we ended up having two election judges, bipartisan judges be on the phone with him when he called back and he validated his identity with his ID number and gave us those sort of credentials and they marked a ballot for him. And we were then able to get him voted in this sort of emergency situation the night before the election is what it ended up being. And that was transformational because first off, it was very emotional to not have a thing to help him. And it was also kind of my first obvious interaction with the laws that didn't work for him. And then I started digging in more and there were more examples of this, more calls from people that 
had a struggle or, or couldn't get to the polling place or whatever it was. And I just kept identifying more and more issues like this, like missing the registration deadline, didn't get the address updated, whatever it was. And the, and the fact is, is every circumstance, the reason why was different. And it could have been an older person or an 18 year old or someone that was working three jobs or whatever. And all of the, the customers or the voters, as I like to say, are really what inspired me to think about elections in a different way. And those moments were, were what changed my thinking in that if the laws don't work for voters, then what's the purpose? And we've got to rethink these things to put voters first, develop processes and procedures that actually help voters be successful in the process. And then, you know, if, we're, if there's no purpose for doing something or it's inefficient or it costs taxpayers a ton of money, we should consider changing it. And so I started just approaching things in different ways like that. I, I, you know, started seeking out process improvement trainings and Lean Six Sigma and all of that. And then when I got in a leadership role, ensured that our entire staff, you know, went to Lean Six Sigma training. And so we started this big transformation, all with the purpose of putting the voter front and center, creating voter-centric processes, and ultimately putting the voters first. And you know, we did that kind of with our own processes, and then we started advocating for law changes. Um, and we really tried to follow the data that the voters were telling us a story through. I mean, they're really ultimately, with their choices, are telling us what they want. And we followed that, and then I'm convinced that we can deliver better services, and I'm convinced that every state can do it effectively. And when we truly put voters first, that's when the change happens and that's when everybody wins. Amber, I always like how you describe this voter first philosophy. It's something that I try to carry with me all the time when I'm doing my job. And I find, you know, a couple things. One, election administrators, and I think a lot of us, myself included, are guilty of it from time to time that if we change this process, uh, this is going to be harder, or why can't those people just fill this form out? I mean, what's so hard about that? Or legislators, for a number of various reasons, you know, would be resistant to changes. So my question to you is, how do you approach, one, election administrators that might be reluctant to embrace a voter-first philosophy the way you've described it? And two, how do you approach legislators who are resistant in that way? I think first, it's it's all about education. And what I mean by that is collecting data about voters and the and sort of their experience. So how many provisionals, how many calls did election offices get about certain topics? You know, are they mostly, where's my polling place? Are they mostly missing the voter registration deadline? Like, what is it? Why are people voting provisionals in great numbers? Is it address changes or missing the deadline? What, what, what might it be? And so I think asking these crucial data questions to me is one of the most basic way to say, if we made this change, it would reduce your provisional ballots by 90%, right? And the example I have in Colorado, that's actually a data point I used. I looked very specifically, did a lot of data analysis on our provisional counts and who was voting provisionals and why. And my estimate was if we went to the Colorado model like we designed it, we'd reduce provisionals by 95%. It actually ended up going down by 98, and now it's even gone to 99% in the most recent elections. So I was off by a few. It was actually better. <laughs> but 
we also, you know, kind of doing that and then election administrators, like not every clerk in Colorado supported the model, but they do now. And, you know, some of them that were resistant didn't see those pieces, like the downstream impacts of some of that, the easier time of instead of running three elections, we can really run one with a second offering of in-person voting over a long period of time plus election day kind of a different way to think about it than the way we were doing before, which was early voting, polling places, and mail ballots with extreme administrative burdens on all uh, applications for mail ballots, early voting with kind of an antiquated technology system, and then polling places, which had all the provisional ballots being cast because they, people were going to the wrong place. So I think that data, and this is this is not unlike business, you know, every successful business they're using their customer data to improve their processes, make different decisions on delivering customer service, and that ultimately improves their operational way of doing business. And, you know, if you look at the business community, and this was a model that I, I used in Denver, there's sort of three different types of businesses. There's sort of the businesses that focus on innovation. So those are the Teslas of the world and the Apples of the world, where they're constantly breaking stuff to create something new. Then there's sort of the customer focused organizations, Disney and Nordstrom's fall into that where they spend a lot of money on each customer. That's why it costs so much money to go into Disney World for the tickets. And you know, a lot of those retailers kind of do that where they spend so much money serving individual customers. And then there's the UPSs and the Southwest of the world. And, I, and they're more operational where their total focus is how do you make the operation more efficient while serving customers better and also innovating where needed in the process. I think elections fall in that operational category. And the reason is, is like, if you look at a, a UPS, they optimize their routes to only take, if they can, right turns. So their routes basically have the trucks going mostly right turns as they move through their routes because they spend less time in traffic and they can deliver the boxes sooner to their customers because they're in traffic less. Southwest, does free baggage and they have the boarding process to just get the plane off the ground. It's not actually about saving money or serving customers, even though that's what it feels like. Their operational decisions have improved the customer process. That's where I think elections kind of falls in the grand scheme of things is that the more efficient you can make the operation, the more people you can move through the line in a faster way, the more people you can move through the system before election day, the better off you are. And there, and that takes policy change, but it also takes technical improvements. And that's how I would explain it to election officials. Uh, you can have the best of all worlds. You can improve your customer service, make your operation more efficient. And that ultimately helps you with all that you have to do in the grand scheme of things. You've been all across the country now. You've been in a whole bunch of election offices, more than most people. Why is it that there hasn't been that kind of innovation across the country? I mean, what, what is the impediment? The short answer is, I think first, state legislative bodies and legislators don't understand elections. Uh, so they are sort of, you know, there's a lot of outdated laws on the books that don't work, that aren't designed for customers. And often those legislators are not listening to the folks that are the experts, you guys, in Missouri. As an example, election officials need to be at the table helping to inform legislators on what this should look like. We also don't have a national election system, so everything varies by state. 
I think that that actually introduces risk in disinformation spreading more widely because we don't have national standards where there's more consistency by states. I think we need that. I anticipate that we're going to see more of that over the next few years because there should be some basic minimums. You know, it shouldn't vary so much as it does right now because it just introduces confusion and disinformation. I I sort of look at Florida 2000 and it sort of forced a big change in Florida for them to think differently. And they had this motivation to never be Florida 2000 again. And they achieved that this year. They've been hailed as kind of, okay, they did really good and they've, you know, achieved all these things and what have you. I feel like sometimes, unfortunately, when there's, you know, a, a nightmare or there's challenges or whatever, that can drive change. And hopefully that's good change. Oftentimes we see it being bad change, which would not be good. And then I think the lack of funding in elections. I mean, I this year I've said many times that the real winners and the heroes and the you know heroes of the day this year have been election officials because they've achieved pulling off a presidential election in a pandemic, even with one hand tied behind their back, with state legislative bodies not doing what they should do, a lack of funding from the federal government or the state legislative bodies. Uh, you've essentially had one t- hand tied behind your back. And thank goodness, private philanthropy and businesses were able to at least lend some support. But that's not how we can operate going into the future. So there has to be baseline funding that election officials can rely on. And then also good practices and and good policies to support all of it. Can you go into a little bit of what the Colorado model is and how did it come to be? So what we what Colorado had prior to our our transformation that's now a little over seven years ago is we we were conducting three elections. We had assigned government locations, polling places on one day. We also had early voting for two weeks for general elections or a week for smaller elections. And then we had mail-in ballot requests. And when we started the mail-in ballot request, it was you had to file a request for every election. Then we passed a law to allow, you could sign up for the whole year. So if there were three elections in the year, you could request a ballot for the whole year. Then we moved the legislature to have single sign-up, meaning, um, and part of the reason for that is we started running the data and literally the same voters were applying every time and we were processing the requests <laughs> multiple times a year. And then we were able to get single sign-up. And that's really when the transformation really started in that we saw huge growth. I mean, there were counties that had 80% of people requesting a ballot on a permanent basis starting in 2011, 2012. And so that really was what catapulted our change. It was driven by voters. Voters were really the ones self-selecting the method of voting they wanted. Um, We obviously provided the way for them to do that, made it easier over time. And by the time that kind of 2012, the 2008 and 2012 elections were the most expensive that we had run because we had so many people voting by mail. We had a lot of people voting early and we were kind of this third, third, third. And that's really expensive. Um, And the polling places were the biggest drain because the fewest people were using them. And we were, it cost us the most money to run them with personnel, equipment, all of that. And they were also creating the most problems. We had the most calls on election day because of machine issues or training issues. We had the most uh, provisional ballots cast on election day because they were going to the wrong polling place. 
Um, so the, the drain that was the polling places was one of the big things that was stressful for election administrators. And so we were, and with our early voting model, we were essentially running vote centers for two weeks. As, as we started to see more and more people vote by mail, kind of combining with that early voting piece, we were, we were thinking, well, what if we basically take the two in-person voting methods and put them together? So instead of having polling places, we have vote centers that are early through election day. We no longer have to bring in the equipment to change it out and send it out again and reprogram it. We just continue all of it and add more. And we subsequently mail a ballot to everyone. And we were also mailing ballots in small elections that weren't the general elections, so people were getting used to it. Um, so when we started off on creating the legislation, basically the Democrats, and, and I was called into a meeting, um, I and Hillary Hall from Boulder were the only two that were invited, basically said, we want to pass same-day registration. And we, we said, anything else? Are you like, we have to change all these other things to make that happen. And they were like, no, we're, we just want to see it on the same model we have, polling places, early voting. And, you know, and we, we can't logistically and technically that's going to create more nightmares than it solves. And by the way, close to 80 percent of Coloradans are requesting a mail ballot. So that's where really we started to map this out. And they said, OK, show us what you what you think. And we said, well, we do it, do it with vote centers, preserve in-person voting for a period of time before Election Day. And then on election day, voters can go to any location. We'll set a formula by population and registration numbers. And then we'll also mail a ballot to everyone. Um, so it kind of all came together. And there were uh, five Colorado women clerks that were really the ones at the table driving this, Republicans and Democrats. Uh, and we were really the ones at the table with legislative body and advocacy groups designing this. And that's really why it was successful is because election officials were able to design all the elements in combination with the advocacy groups, in combination with the legislative body. And we were able to design a system that worked for everyone. And that was really the ultimate goal. Uh, so now Colorado mails a ballot to everyone. Vote centers are available across the state. Uh, you can drop your ballot off at any box or any vote center in the entire state. Doesn't matter what county you live in. I think this year, 98% of people voted using the mail ballot and one or probably close to 1% voted in person. But that's essentially the model and it saved, you know, a significant amount of capital personnel. Uh, election judge numbers went down by 70% and turnout went up. So turnout went up, costs went down. Some of the challenges we used to have in elections went away. Provisionals went down by 98%. So those are sort of the, the outcomes that came out of this change. So from my perspective, the states that adopted that model were ideally situated for 2020 and the pandemic and, and what happened. I think one of the examples that Voted Home Institute gave was Wisconsin and Washington State when they had their primaries back in the spring, that Washington state had a relatively easy as a bad way to put it, but it went relatively smooth. And in Wisconsin, they made national headlines with people in line for hours and hours and so on. So it seems like it's almost a no brainer to want to move in that direction. However, as you well know, 
there was a lot of pushback against vote by mail or mail ballots. Do you think there's going to be kind of a pullback in some places against this model, or do you see it uh, continuing to expand? I think it's going to be a little bit of both. I think there's going to be some states that want to make it more difficult, and there's already bills and examples of that. Uh, I think there's already 243 in all the states on this topic. Um, So there's definitely going to be you know, some legislatures that we're going to have to defend the ability for voters to keep the option. Um, and then there's going to be other examples of states wanting to expand it. Uh, New York, Connecticut, Vermont, Rhode Island, all good examples. A lot of the northeast and eastern states are expanding it because it, it worked very well for them. Uh, New York has traditionally never had early voting or no excuse absentee until this year. So we're going to see a little bit of both. I think that the the important thing is the devil's in the details. List maintenance has to be good. You need to have automatic registration or automated ways of voters' addresses getting updated. Uh, that makes the system better and more secure. So there's a way to do it right. And that's what we really want to help states think about is how to improve their existing processes, um, how to solve problems if they are concerned about security, how do we, you know, design better policies that that address any security concerns, but at the same time still provide access? Because it's also not secure if voters face barriers or wait in line for hours and hours or, you know, can't figure out an option to vote. That's also a security problem. To me, election officials face the most challenging process to administer in that you have to balance fairness, accessibility, security, transparency, equity, and reliability faster. Yeah, the acronym is FASTER. All those values matter the same. Like they're all equally important. None is more important than the other. Uh, Some advocates will say security, 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 and they are willing to ignore accessibility. And you can't, you, you as election officials, you can't do that. We have to balance all those values equally and that's what I think is really important for legislators to contemplate is, is the bill they're putting forward going to accomplish all of those values equally? Is it going to hurt voters in any way? Is it going to hurt one part of the process over another? Uh, so I think those key questions are really important when legislating on these topics to make sure voters aren't left out. I've been so curious and anxious about better ways to validate mail ballots. I know right now, you know, signature verification, ballot tracking, those are important security features to it. Is there anything on the horizon that would make the verification of mail ballots a little bit more expedient, secure, efficient, whatever adjective you want to use? I'm definitely a innovator and I have a very big creative streak in my mind. Um, And so I, you know, signature verification is kind of the standard right now. I'm convinced technology can actually solve this problem. I think there's opportunities to make what what I would deem to be kind of a smart ballot drop box. So when you insert the ballot, it potentially could read the barcode on it, put your ID, you know, scan your ID um, as an additional validator. So if there was a problem with the signature, having that information, you would then therefore not reject it because you have that extra info. Um, Ohio does a process where they actually have you write your state ID number 
on the ballot. So if there is an issue, they can kind of identify that in that way. I don't like the idea of a photocopy being required for the ID because most people don't have scanners and printers at home. But there is now, you know, ballot tracking is definitely a thing that we're recommending. I mean, this is a security feature. It gives voters accountability over where their ballot is. Uh, it notifies if there's any issue, whether it be delivery or signature. And then there's some new platforms now. There's a text to cure process that some states have utilized, including Colorado, where if your signature doesn't match, you can literally resolve it over text. You take a picture of your ID with your phone and send it in with the affidavit. I think things like that could be tied in proactively even. Uh, maybe you take, you know, use your phone to QR on the envelope, take a picture of your ID, send it in, and it's all tied together with your ballot tracking info and the election official gets all of it. You know, leveraging what exists now, connecting all these pieces together in a comprehensive way, potentially I think we could create something that adds to the current process or supplements it. And then there's, you know, the accessibility aspect of things. Accessible vote at home options are absolutely critical for military voters that are overseas and have logistical challenges, but also voters that may be blind or may have other um, accessible needs and is something that I think we also need to do more work on um, and innovate on. And there are some states that have done pilots. Uh, I think we'll, we'll continue to see those sorts of technologies um, piloted and, and, you know, hopefully there will be more study of that to ensure it's secure. Uh, but I think I could see, I think those sorts of emerging technologies will continue to pop up. One of the things that I think in Missouri tends to hamstring us, especially in smaller jurisdictions that don't have a full IT suite available to them, is our dependency on whatever the state decides to do on the voter registration system. So we only have what's available to us through what the Secretary of State's office has provided. And I know that some of the things that Denver did and some of the things that other jurisdictions do is create something outside of that. How do you fit in technology when somebody else is in control of how you pull that data out, what format it is, all of that? It is such a good question. And, you know, Denver was the biggest county or is the biggest county in Colorado. And when I was deputy, Gosh, way back in 2007, we were moving from a county-based voter registration system and EMS to a state voter registration system. And I was part of the committee to do the data, the data connectivity, the testing, and then also, you know, provide feedback on the system itself. And I think that the sort of rush that HAVA, you know, HAVA kind of required states to go to a statewide system and the problem with that, and I, I feel like this is a problem that happens a lot when the federal government gets involved, is that they gave all the money to the states. And so the states went and built something or bought something that they've never used. They don't run elections at the county level. And, you know, so most states actually, you know, purchased to, to accommodate their HAVA requirement, got systems, and most did not have really detailed conversations with the counties on the specific needs. Uh, the other thing that a lot of states did in that process was they bought systems that were designed mostly for small counties. And there wasn't for a big county that needs to export data, you couldn't export it, or you had to go through the state to get an export. 
Um, so it wasn't as functional. That sort of, I feel like a lot of states ended up in the same position that you're in now, where you've got something that isn't frankly very usable for you because the user design element wasn't done right in the beginning. But I think there's a real opportunity, and I think this is really important for local officials to continue to push for, you know, when there's when there's conversations on funding at the federal level, and immediately what always happens is they basically say, okay, here's the money, EAC, give it to the states. And then the secretaries decide where that money goes. And they're not the ones that are on, you know, on the ground running elections at the local level. So I really think an innovation fund or you know, coming up with some sort of better local structure where you can get the money directly as opposed to having to go through the Secretary of State's office or rely on another political person <laughs> to get access to that, I think could be a way forward to, to think differently about this. In Denver, we were lucky because we're home rule. And basically that means that, you know, if the state tried to kind of force us to do something, depending on the type of election it was, you know, we had actually a legal recourse to 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 challenge it or to to hold our own. But again, I think pushing for innovation funding and also uh, doing more to push the vendors, you know, share your ideas with the vendors, see if they'll partner with you. Uh, I did that multiple times with technology providers. Ballot tracking was something we developed with a software provider. It was first in the country and we did that together. Uh, we did that with the voting system vendor with Dominion. Uh, we basically said, here's what we want. Are you willing to work with us on it? And they were, and they did. And then maybe at the legislative level, you know, at least open the door for opportunities to pilot and innovate and do all that. Cause that's the only way we get better. I definitely want to address what your main project is now, National Voter Home Institute. Hopefully we can get that word out a little bit. The National Vote Home Institute, it's uh, three years um, now in operation. Um, we're a nonpartisan, nonprofit, national level. Our overall mission is to improve the voting experience for all by expanding opportunities to vote with vote by mail and vote at home options. As part of that, we look to improve the existing processes with a goal really of designing voter first and voter centric processes and, and policies. Our work really falls into three categories, uh, policy, design, and advocacy. We do lobby. We do get involved in pushing for changes within state legislatures. Uh, we, can, we are a resource to local election officials on that front as well. One of the things that I say almost every hour of every day, especially if I'm on the phone with the legislator, is have you talked to your local officials about whatever it is that you're proposing? Often the answer is no. The majority of the time, the answer is no. So one of the first things that we're doing is really pushing legislators to do that outreach, talk to their local administrators. And if they don't, we want to bring them in. So we're trying to serve as that catalyst for connecting those, because I truly believe that unless local administrators are involved, uh, the policy won't turn out the way that most people think it, it should or could and, and be successful. And our second piece is election official engagement and support, which you mentioned. Uh, we, we create tools. We house a lot of tools on our website that we make available for free. Uh, one, you know, we have a vote by mail planning calculator. Uh, we also have created voter intent guides and created trainings and, and resources that are available to local election officials uh, for free. 
Um, and then we also have a team that can actually support directly, provide direct support, come out, help with process improvement, help with implementation, uh, point election offices to resources and vendors and, and solutions that could help them. Uh, we did a ton of that this year with Georgia, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. We worked with multiple jurisdictions. Uh, we did some work in Texas, uh, New York, New Jersey, D.C. So we really provided all of that support through the team that we have, which are which are former election officials that are on that team. Uh, and then communications is the third big one. Um, and again, we really focused on supporting election officials. So we created a Guardians of Democracy campaign where we interviewed local officials, uh, created videos and content to put out to build trust in the local election officials, um, and then educate the public on them being the trusted sources. Uh, we really pushed that initiative quite heavily. Um, one of our ads was ad of the week by the New York Times uh, in October in political season, which was pretty amazing. And then overall education and kind of being the national voice on this topic is a big part of the communication work as well. There were millions of vote by mail stories this year, believe it or not. <laughs> Many we contributed to uh, and tried to share good data and good information with reporters on you know, our very much our core is focused on election officials and supporting them and supporting their ability to get their voices heard in the legislatures um, and really out in the public domain. Because one of the other polls we did this year found that local election officials are, in fact, the most trusted sources of election information by the public. And they they rank 10 points above secretaries and governors even. Uh, and then local journalists are the second most trusted for election information. So uh, so that's really why we focus so heavily on local election officials. Feel free to reach out to us. We are absolutely happy to hop on a call and, and work through whatever the issues might be uh, to help. What advice would you have to local election authorities in that position where, I think really kind of hearkening back to what we first started with, there tends to be some cynicism amongst local election authorities about whether we're here to serve voters or just, you know, generally just running elections and agnostic to whether voters participate in the first place or have an easy time doing it. What is the biggest thing that you would give as advice to somebody that wants to do more for voters, but can't really do it in a large way? <laughs> For many years, you know, I was in that boat like we, you know, it was before we had changed a lot of the laws and, and, I, you know, I had leadership that didn't want to change for the first year that I was there. And it's really, it's a tough place to be in when you feel like you've got your hands tied behind your back, frankly, to, to get much done. Um, so I, I, I think that one of the biggest ways to effectuate change is to continue to educate the public and uh, certainly policymakers and also influencers on the reasons why change needs to happen. And one thing we created in Denver was we created kind of an advisory group that included heads of different organizations and from all different sectors of, of our community. And, you know, the goal was to get their feedback on the work we were doing and at the same time, educate them on what was needed and what we needed to do going forward and the changes we needed to see. And they became our biggest advocates. And they, you know, when it came up, legislation came up or anything like that, so many groups that traditionally would not get involved in election related matters 
wanted to, and they would share our information. And they, you know, it was, we kind of created this little cohort of champions for what we were trying to do. Um, and similar with voters, we held um, information sessions and educational sessions on, you know, what we were trying to do, what was preventing us from doing that, and, you know, really started to see more voters activate their voices in what they wanted to do. So I think that's that's sort of one way is to continue to look for ways that you can put voters first on your in your own in your own way, but then also at the same time create a swell of uh, of advocates and champions for change. Um, and it's going to take a lot. It's going to take a long time. I mean, it's a it's a long process, but it's also worthwhile. And I think the the one uh, kind of one shiny spot that happened in 2020 is so many more people saw what the election process looks like. It's never been covered like this before. Um, and I think that that's actually done a really good thing in highlighting the differences by state, the discrepancies between voters having rights to do one thing in one state versus another, and perhaps educated the public further on why things may be difficult than what they than what they might have thought. And I think we can use that. I think that the opportunity now is to leverage the fact that the public understands more than they ever have about this process and continue to ed educate them and and push them to be champions for themselves too. They need to they need to demand that they have a good voting experience too. Thanks everybody for tuning in to another episode of High turnout, wide margins, and a big thank you to Amber McReynolds for being our guest. Please tune in next time for the next exciting episode of High Turnout, Wide Margins. <laughs>